Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Is water a public trust? Members of the public and Governor Malloy's administration think so. They say people in Connecticut have an inherent right to clean water, pointing to the need for lawmakers to adopt recommendations from the state's first ever water plan. Not everyone's on board with the plan, including water utilities. Coming up, we'll find out what's in this state water plan and hear from an association representing utilities about their concerns with language in the plan. Now, what concerns do you have as a Connecticut resident when it comes to our water sources? Join the conversation. That's later. We'll also check in with a hydrologist to learn more about the state's water and find out how each of us can conserve water. But first, do you remember hearing about Day Zero? Cape Town, South Africa was heading towards a day when the city would be without water. The day of depletion came to be known as Day Zero, but conservation efforts helped push that day off for now. So how is Cape Town faring today? And what lessons can we learn from its water issues? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us via Skype is Lindsay Schutal, journalist for Quartz based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So give us a little bit of the backstory on this water crisis. How did it first emerge? So the Cape Town water crisis began essentially when people began to identify that Cape Town is now officially in a drought. The city has had, or the region, which is the province, the Western Cape, they had two dry winters. And that particular part of the country gets their rainfall in June, July, which is winter here for us right now. And Cape Town for two years didn't get the usual amount of rainfall that it gets. It used to be known as the Cape of Storms to give you an idea of just how much rain they had. And suddenly, 2015, 2016, 2017, things began to dry up. And by uh, last year, they were officially in a drought. And and why Cape Town's been so significant is because it's the first major city essentially in the world to run out of water. So suddenly you're stuck with the idea where you have nearly 5 million people in a major city that also attracts thousands of international tourists each year. And suddenly the city no longer has water. And what the city officials then started to do was to try and get people to reduce their water usage. And so what they did was that they introduced restrictions, water restrictions, and those restrictions had certain levels. For example, you had uh, level four, which is you can't, for example, water your garden, whereas the most recent and the most stringent that they experienced was level 6B that reduced you to like 90 second showers. If you so much as thought of filling your pool, it was an absolute shame. You couldn't water your garden. A, a green lawn, for that matter, was a source of shame in the city. Also, in some instances where people actually found themselves having to line up for uh, drinking water because they were using groundwater, recycled water also. Lindsay, Lindsay, for mm -hmm. those of us that are um, not familiar with uh, South Africa, tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. the topography and how that played a part in Cape Town's water crisis. So while scientists are not necessarily putting down a single reason for the source of the drought, a large part of it has to do with climate change. So the uh, Western Cape uh, is uh, traditionally a rather wet region, uh, but it suddenly uh, 
it, it began uh, drying out. And what, what's interesting is that it's it's in a region that's stuck that's between um, between oceans. So it wasn't necessarily that people expected um, it to dry out in, in the manner that it did. The other thing is that the area is surrounded. Cape Town as a city is surrounded by farmland, so the water source um, out, the water sources outside of Cape Town also need to be shared with the um, fruit farmers, the the grape farmers who um, are South Africa's main wine producers. So what you had, and then the other thing is that because Cape Town is a, an urban hub in the area, it's also seen a large amount of migration from rural areas. So the city's population, for example, has doubled in the last 10 years or so. Mm. So well, mm-hmm. And Cape Town is the largest city in South Africa. How many residents? It is the uh, second largest. Johannesburg is the largest, um, and Cape Town comes in a close second. You were telling us about the different uh, levels of uh, of conserving water that uh, residents in Cape Town had to follow. Um, so now that we're hearing that uh, day zero has been pushed off, uh, what does that mean exactly in terms of water restrictions, Lindsay? Well, if you ask people on the ground, they're just excited to be able to run their showers for more than 90 seconds at a time. Um, you know, people are... I. The people are excited to be able to uh, participate again in, in little things that you take for granted when you don't have water, like going for a swim, um, fixing up your garden, etc. So they they are really celebrating. You see it on Facebook. You see it when you visit the city. Um, the tourism industry is also trying to push hard to say that we don't have a water problem anymore. But city officials are terrified at all the celebration that's happening because they're saying, listen, we're still in a position where we could very easily be in a drought in the next year or the next two years because climate patterns in the region have become so unpredictable. I mean, just last week, Cape Town was experiencing flash floods in certain areas because thankfully we're having um, a wet winter again. But that extreme weather is seeing flooding. And the concern is, again, because climate, change, climate patterns have become so unpredictable, that, that flooding might, lead, you might be replaced with unpredictable drying. And so we, we might again be heading for a drought. So city officials are saying this is the new normal, that we have to get used to um, a drier country. And that's not just Cape Town, it's South Africa and to a large other parts of the Southern Hemisphere as well, including Australia. This is where we live. Uh, joining us via Skype is journalist Lindsay Shutal. Uh, she is a journalist for Courts based in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're getting an update on what's happening there uh, in Cape Town um, after uh, that city was so very close to what was considered day zero uh, when uh, water uh, sources would have been depleted. Now that day zero has been pushed off now to 2019, and we're curious about what's happening there on the ground. Now, we, I keep using this term day zero, uh, Lindsay. Is this something that was a, a scientific prediction or more of just a call to action to get Cape Town residents to follow the conservation efforts? It was a combination of the two, actually. Um, the, the, the day zero itself became quite a PR campaign. Uh, the city of Cape Town literally had a countdown, a dashboard going. Local television stations also had a day zero countdown in the top uh, screen of their news bulletins. Uh, but the uh, formal way of calculating day zero is to take into account uh, maximum evaporation. So that's based on temperature and wind, and then also existing water usage. So what farmers are using, what um, uh, and, and urban usage and somehow um, the city and the uh, researchers were able to come up with the data when they felt that we would be running out of uh, viable water usage. So Cape Town would then give 
um, updates on what the dams were looking like, uh, what the usable amount of water in the dams was, and you would see that uh, level dropping month by month down to, uh, once it got about 5%, the last 5% of water in a dam was unusable. So those are also factors that they were trying to get residents to understand that we are very clearly running out of usable water very quickly. So it was a combination of uh, sound research, but also just the city trying to get people to mobilize to save water, to reduce their, le- their usage in the end, it was just 50 liters per day. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically how it all worked together. Lindsay, what would have happened if day zero had indeed arrived? What would have been the plans for Cape Town residents to access water? So the doomsday scenario with day zero was that essentially the taps were going to be turned off. And what that would mean is that um, households would no, households and businesses would no longer be able to just open up what I think Americans call faucets or faucets. That's right. <laughs> you would basically, yeah, open it. So we call them taps. And um, essentially you, you, they, they would be, um, they would run out. They would no longer distribute water to uh, residential areas. And you would now be have to, you would be forced to collect water from a, a particular um uh, collection point, and it's usually like a large water tank, large a truck with a water tank on the back, distributing a bucket of water. And it's important to remember that even though Cape Town uh, became the focus point of um, what happens when a big city runs out of water, because Southern Africa is drying out, we've had a drought for the last three or so years, various versions of the drought, where, for example, Johannesburg had a, a, a lighter drought, um, a less severe drought two or three years ago, and smaller towns on the west eastern side of the country also had a drought. And I visited one of those towns, and I saw what it was like to have to sit in a line from three in the morning with your bucket. You allow two buckets per family. You stand there with the wheelbarrow and hope that by the time you get to the water tank, there's still enough water. So in a small town, that was already one of the most, it was an incredibly stressful situation. And the concern with Cape Town was that you now had just under 5 million people who would have to be lining up for water. And that's the 5 million in the city. And then there's also an additional population outside in the vineyards, in the smaller towns around Cape Town. They too would have run out of water. So essentially, Cape Town is so scary because it gave us an idea of just what the world would look like when when we do run out of water because of climate change. Can you give us a little um, of the context of what was going on politically in South Africa? You know, one of the other scenarios was uh, importing water or maybe bringing water in from other parts of the country. Was this something that became a a partisan issue? or Was there any tension from different parts of South Africa uh, thinking about um, having to uh, maybe take water from their region to help Cape Town? Absolutely. I think one of the big lessons was just how important water is as a resource and um, how much power it had. So Cape Town and the province that surrounds it, the Western Cape, is run by the opposition, the Democratic Alliance. And uh, most of the rest of the country, except for a couple of cities, are run by the African National Congress. That's the uh, party of Nelson Mandela. And um, the, the Democratic Alliance and the um, African National Congress, uh, frankly, do not get along as um, as one does across the political line. And so what you had is that you had the big attention of the National Water and Sanitation Department versus the local and provincial Water and Sanitation Department, each blaming the one uh, local government saying that they're not getting the support from national government because their person is not in power, because their party isn't in power, and so therefore they're not seen as a priority. Cape Town, to a large extent, sometimes politically feels quite isolated from the rest of the country because it's led by the opposition. 
Then within the city itself, there, we're currently sitting with a, a scandal that's unfolding because of the water crisis, where the city's mayor uh, argues that she refused to allow a desalination plant that would have been backed by, uh, allegedly by several Israeli companies. And because she refused to sign off on it, she's been removed from her job. That's what she says. Of course, her party says that it was just a matter of corruption and mismanagement, including about how she managed the water crisis. So it, 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 it became really clear. It became such a political issue that you're not, it just became clear that it was, how do you handle a crisis like this? Not only to keep uh, people from going into panic, but also how do you maintain a clear and calm political head? And to be honest, um, it didn't it didn't go well in Cape Town. It's, it's still not going well. I think to Cape Town's credit, and just a bit of luck, frankly, is that they're having a wetter winter. And so maybe um, calm will prevail, but it, it really has blown open all the divisions in the city. I understand Cape Town is very segregated. Um, how has this water crisis played out um, in pitting uh, the white middle class against uh, black South Africans, some who live in the slums? So there was a lot of anger and just a bit of resentment. So for example, uh, when it came to uh, water usage, and so so the city, what they did was part of their big PR campaign around day zero, is that they would send out things like, this is how you save water. For example, you can put a shower in your bucket, you could put a bucket in your shower, and that would help you collect water. And then you could use that, what they call gray water to water your garden, or if, if, if or to wash your car, whatever else you might need. So to reuse water, they would also encourage people to use a bucket to wash instead of uh, having a bath or a shower. And um, people, and and, this was, and of course, you know, the matter about pools and lawns, etc. But people in the surrounding um, informal settlements or slums were looking at these campaigns and going, but this is how we've lived this entire time. Here you have what is ostensibly a rather wealthy city because the, in, the city bowl of Cape Town compares to any developed country. It's well run, it's clean, it's got skyscrapers. And these people are living out and they've been living like this for the past 20 years. And the city's failed to, like, like most parts of South Africa, has failed to provide for its poor. And so the poor were saying, you're, you're out here giving these uh, social media campaigns about how to save water, but we've literally lived like this all our lives. And it seems like the only time proper water infrastructure became an issue was when it was affecting the rich. So that's another issue that Cape Town has had to struggle with. And it's possibly also what might lead to a bit of un- a lack of popularity for the, for the party over there, especially with an election year uh, coming up in 2019. Again, we're speaking with uh, Lindsay Schutal, a, rep- uh, a journalist for Courts uh, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. We talked about uh, Cape Town being able to push off the so-called Day Zero until 2019. Again, um, just uh, briefly how they were able to do that and why was 2019 now chosen? Right. So 2019 is just, it essentially became... Um, sort of like the more generalized date, because Cape Town had very specific dates. There was a time when we were counting, uh, it used to be April 27th, then it was May 16th, then it was brought forward to early April. So the city always had very, very specific dates. And then all of a sudden, because um, there seemed to be some rainfall and a number of factors that led to day zero being postponed, we've now got this indefinite date of 2019. And I think now that date is is rather, not politicized, well, politicized and also um, just to get residents to remember that even though they have some rainfall now, that there's a very large possibility that we might have another drought um, next year. The other thing that with with the Cape Town drought is it was a combination of things it, that, that led to the postponement of day zero. One of it was just because um, 
citizens were, were really saving water. Uh, I must commend the citizens of Cape Town that they really reduced their water short, their, their water usage. Um, and they, they took the messaging very seriously. You heard people honestly saying that we are reducing our water usage to 50 litres a day because we're doing our part in this. And so I must, for the most part, uh, people did, middle class residents, residents, because they were the largest water users, users, they really did well. The other thing is that Cape Town's farmers, who have kind of been on the front line of um, climate change, and this, this they say themselves, is that... Um, they, because the region has become uh, slowly but surely become drier, farmers um, have had to, they usually have private dams on their farms, and they've seen their own dams dry out. And so they've come together and they've worked together to um, increase and, and share their, their water resources. So much so that uh, because they were prepared, what, what farmers would, were saying to me when I was reporting on the matter is that they said they've frankly been living in day zero for the last months or weeks. So they knew exactly what life would be like without water. And so what they did was, because they had been better prepared than the city was, they um, reduced their, their um, need for uh, public dams and so that that water was then shifted over to, um, over to the city for usage. So it was a combination of just generosity on the part of farmers who were able to have private dams and citizens who really cut back. Uh, it's good to hear that uh, the water in Cape Town has not been completely depleted because of, again, uh, these measures by residents and also uh, with uh, the change in the weather, Lindsay. But is there concern at all from local officials that now that the day has been pushed back that uh, maybe next time around uh, the residents won't take it as seriously? That's exactly the concern. Um, day zero had become such an ominous um moment in South Africa in the last couple of months where it was, even though it was happening to Cape Town, it became sort of like a, it became a national issue. And um, of course, because we're talking about it clearly to some extent, an international issue as a, as a major city. And so when that didn't happen, you know, that the idea that you were preparing for disaster, then disaster happen, doesn't happen. You have one of two things, either people don't take the warning seriously or they learn their lesson. We're hoping that, uh, and I know city officials are hoping that people have learned their lessons about uh, water usage and what they call the new normal of having to save water every single day. But um, because the matter has become so politicized, because the issue has, frankly, here in South Africa, been completely eclipsed by the uh, issues around the mayor, the, the, the tension between the provincial and the national government, that now nobody's talking about, well, hey, what happens if day zero comes in 2019? There are no, there seem to be no contingencies uh, being discussed. Instead, it's just um, politicking. And uh, I think that would, and especially given that it's an election year next year, I think that that would really um, frustrate residents in Cape Town because they are now divided along uh, partisan lines instead of coming together as they did now to discuss what to do in case day zero does turn up again. Lindsay, we're talking with you uh, during a show where uh, here in Connecticut we're going to focus in on uh, state efforts to uh, encourage conservation and to really uh, plan how we use our natural resources. Uh, What lessons should we take from the situation in Cape Town? Yeah, I was listening to you earlier saying that there might be a possibility, uh, but whether water should be a uh, public seen as a public resource and how you how you cost around that. And one of the issues with Cape Town was um, in, a, in an attempt to lower water usage among the public, they were discussing the idea of actually increasing water tariffs, making it um, more expensive than it currently is. Um, the concern with that is, I think that's a concern, uh, is that 
that is the concern that translates is that what happens to your poorer residents, your residents on the lower economic scale, if you're increasing water tariffs, um, what happens to people who simply can't afford to pay any more for water? I understand, the, and, and, and Cape Town was that example of how do you and how do you treat water as a precious resource and at the same time treat it as a public resource? This is something that is, that is um, it's a resource that we've taken for granted and it's a resource that even just a few months in Cape Town showed us that if it does run out, it could be a complete disaster. And how do you then um, get people to understand the, the importance of this resource? And not just about uh, closing the tap uh, when you're brushing your teeth, but to really say and to understand that the new normal isn't that water is an endless resource, but that the new normal is that uh, water is a resource to be protected in the same way that we've protected our other natural resources. Lindsay Schutal is a journalist for Courts based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us via Skype. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Connecticut is far from having its own day zero, but that doesn't mean the state's water supply is infinite. We'll hear more about the state's first ever water plan and get perspective from water utilities, too. Now, do you think Connecticut's doing enough to protect and conserve its natural resources? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Jane Clayson with NPR's On Point. Behind the news, there are real people with something to say. We bring them to you. Roundtable conversations with women truckers, cattle ranchers, families in the thick of the opioid crisis. Honest, straight talk from the heart. It's fresh perspective you won't hear anywhere else. Join us for the next On Point. This morning at 10. Support comes from our members and from graduate liberal studies at Wesleyan University with degree and non-degree graduate level classes for working professionals and others in pursuit of educational excellence. Info session June 12th. Wesleyan.edu slash masters. And from Metro Hartford Alliance and Hartford Young Professionals and Entrepreneurs. Helping young professionals become better engaged in community life, expand professional and social opportunities, and become ambassadors for the Hartford region. More at HypeHartford.com. Connecticut Public Radio's Environmental Reporting Initiative is made possible by the Nature Conservancy and Paint Care's Connecticut Recycling Program. Listen for stories on Morning Edition and all things considered. You'll see some late morning and afternoon showers, highs around 70. A few showers tonight, lows around 50. Partly sunny on Wednesday, highs near 70. Mostly sunny Thursday, highs in the 70s. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We just heard about Cape Town, South Africa, averting a water crisis for now. Now, nothing this drastic has affected our state, but advocates say that's why protecting water sources and encouraging conservation is important. Just two summers ago, Connecticut was in a drought due to hot, dry weather. If persistent droughts become likely in the future, how would our state handle this problem? Also, how does Connecticut protect its natural resources from private interests? Are these questions addressed in the state's first ever water plan. Joining us now to tell us more is Jack Bikoski, chairman of the Connecticut Water Planning Council, also vice chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, known as Pura. Jack, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, we were surprised to learn this was the state's first ever water plan. What started all of this uh, down the road? The Water Planning Council has actually been in existence since 2001, 
but in 2013, there was an issue relative to getting more water to the University of Connecticut. And there was a big debate between the MDC and the Connecticut Water Company as to what was the best route to do that. And the environmentalists got quite upset because they were worried about the Farmington River going dry. And what happened was the legislature, particularly Senate, uh, Representative Hampton, Representative Steinberg, Representative Mashinsky, uh, said, you know what, we really have to look at the state water plan and what we're planning for the future. So uh, in uh, 2014, uh, Public Act 14163 uh, was passed thanks to the efforts of those legislators and of Governor Malloy uh, because they actually gave us the money to put together a plan. And we are one of the first states in New England uh, to have a state water plan. Massachusetts has components of it, but does not have a full plan. Oh, so we actually beat Massachusetts we ba- for once. We, ba- we actually, we're very proud of that, uh, <laughs> that we beat Massachusetts. And Rhode Island and New Hampshire are looking towards putting a plan together. About 20 states uh, do have plans that have been formulated and implemented. Now, this is an over 600-page uh, document. We don't have time to, to get into all the details, but it is broken into uh, five main points. Can you uh, briefly tell us about those, Jack? And, and thank you, because I was trying to prepare for the show, and to, to go through 600 pages and try to put it into 20 minutes is a, a challenge. But the big highlights of it is that it's a platform for consistent, informed decision-making by stakeholders. Uh, we want to continue to maintain the highest uh, drinking, quality drinking water, balance in-stream and out-of-stream needs. Water conservation, which we just heard in the previous segment, is something that we really have to keep uh, and zeroing in on. We are lagging behind. We're far ahead in many areas, but in terms of water conservation, we have a lot more to do to educate people. When we don't have a drought situation, people still let the faucet run and water the lawn, wash the car, do things like that. We really have to educate people to make sure that they do not take advantage or just take for granted the water supply that we have. And then most importantly also is to maintain the scientific uh, data. And this, the water plan is a balance between uh, the needs of the people of the state of Connecticut as well as economic, recreational, and social. Let's talk a little bit more about the balance because uh, you touched on my next question. Uh, when we think about, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of water being a public trust. Not everyone's on board with using that language. Uh, but water is used uh, for many different, uh, you know, uh, in many different industries, not just about drinking water. So how do you balance all the interests to make sure that we're protecting our natural resources here? Well, one of the things that we have in the state of Connecticut is the, we call them the Water Utility Coordinating Councils, and they are in three regions, geographic regions in the state of Connecticut that really look at the water supply that g- goes into those specific regions so that we have enough water going there. And it's a very good question. And all the companies that do uh, produce water are required to submit water supply plans to ourselves, P- Public Utility Regulatory Authority, and the Department of Public Health. And uh, Department of Energy and Environmental Protection to make sure that we have adequate water supply, because we're going to ha- we're going to continue as, l- as we go on. You know, that climate change is going to have a significant impact on on our water supply moving down. We're going to have more floods in the winter time and perhaps more droughts in, in the summertime. So it could put a lot of stress on our, our our water system, which is even more the reason why we have to really adhere to our water supply plans uh, in terms of quality and quantity of water. Uh, while this uh, plan was in process, we're all aware of uh, what came out of uh, Bloomfield, uh, West Hartford area, when uh, there was a deal struck uh, to sell water, public water from Connecticut to Niagara Bottling Plant. A lot of opposition from residents. How does this plan address those concerns? The and by the way, I have to say that the Save Our Water individuals were very professional and very much a part of 
coming to our hearings and making statements and seeing how the water plan would address their uh, challenge that they had in, in Bloomfield. And I have to say that we have put a part in the plan where we will look at future economic uh, development issues relative to the water industry. So that it would be, one of the things with this, this plan is really, it's not a legislative mandate, it's a roadmap going forward so that we can look at issues like the bottling plant. So I, because we know it's probably gonna happen again somewhere in the state where somebody's gonna look at wanting to sell water. So we have to come up with a system uh, to, to make sure that uh, our water system is not gonna be uh, co compromised. And uh, we do address it, not specifically the plant, but the bottling plant in terms of economic development projects mm -hmm. in the state of Connecticut. So, I mean, you could have too many, it goes beyond water spot. You could have too many car washes in a particular part of the town, or you could have uh, too many golf courses next to each other, whatever the situation might be. What about uh, the question of um, should out-of-state companies uh, be able to make decisions about water found in Connecticut? I'm talking about the there's a, a merger being negotiated between a California-based company, SJW, and uh, Connecticut uh, Water. And how, again, will this plan, if um, the legislature does adopt some of its recommendations, how do they protect the, the, the interests of, of Connecticut residents and the water that we have here? I have to be careful on that question because it's, it's a pending docket. So I have and to be, Pura is the one that approves the That's deal. exactly right. So let's so, talk theoretically. Theoretically. So, so, so theoretically, we have to make sure that when we have any type of transaction dealing with any of our water companies, that our water supplies are not going to be compromised. I mean, that's, that's you know, we've had this over the years, and I've been a commissioner for some, some time, we've had this skepticism of, of foreign ownership. We've had, for example, Aquarian Water Company was once owned by a company from England. Well, it didn't change anything. The day-to-day -day operation was the same. Our, our concern is that the water supply, the quantity and quality of the water supply is not impacted by any of these transactions that we do in the state of Connecticut. So that's something we as regulators, public health and public utility regulatory authority, would really have to stay on top on uh, to make sure as we go through the interrogatory process and the cross-examination to make sure our water isn't being shipped out to California. This is where we live. In studio with me is Jack Budkowski, chairman of the Connecticut Water Planning Council, also vice chair of Pura Public Utilities Regulatory Authority. Um, we're talking about the state's first ever water plan. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Val's calling, and I believe she's with uh, Save Our Water Connecticut, who we just uh, referenced. Uh, Val, welcome to the show. What's your, what's your take on this uh, water plan? Well, I re we really appreciated the Water Planning Council listening to our views and putting into the draft plan a statement that water is a public trust resource, at least referencing the fact that back in 1971, our Connecticut Environmental Protection Act referenced air, uh, water, and other natural resources as being held in public trust for the citizens of the state, both for now and future generations. And putting into the state water plan a statement that things like large industrial water bottling deserve some inspection and perhaps regulation. So we thank them for that. We were surprised that putting this restatement of Connecticut's environmental protection policy into the plan generated a huge amount of controversy from the water utilities, businesses, um, and, and some legislators, which actually probably stalled the plan from passing in the legislature this year. 
Well, Val, thank you uh, for bringing that up. Uh, Jack, let's talk about that and um, um, respond to what Val is saying about this idea mm-hmm. of, of using that language to say that water is a public trust here in Connecticut. Why is this such an issue? First, I have to commend once again Val and, and Save Our Water, a very great group that really bring their concerns and, and have worked very, uh, as I said before, professionally with us. The public trust issue, it's mentioned twice in a 600-page plan. And I think it's it's a debate that we at the Water Planning Council, one of our first meetings after the legislature is going to be June 15th. So I would suspect, I won't suspect, I'll say that the first thing we'll be taking up is the public trust, trust issue because we really want to get this plan uh, approved by the legislature. And what does it mean when we say public trust? In your words, what does it mean when we're saying that? It's mean that, that the people have a right to water, uh, clean water, clean air, and uh, a clean environment. And that was the part of the preamble to the Department of Environment Protection in 1971 when it was being formed, uh, formulated at the same time the federal EPA was being formed. So it really is a matter of a person's right to be have access to water, air, and a, a clean, green environment. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. Now, I know we have somebody else on the phone that's going to say something <laughs> different, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be talking about that. But I really think that we can read. I'm a great consensus builder. And I'm very. You have to be. I, I have to be in this business. You're absolutely right. And I'm very uh, upset that the plan didn't pass after all the time, money, effort. We had 36 hearings, public hearings, uh, sessions throughout the state of Connecticut, all sorts of public input, over 200 letters coming in the plan. And the fact that it didn't pass because of this, these two words, public trust, is, is frustrating. That being said, We'll get, go back and, and we'll come up with some type of compromise that's going to be acceptable. We almost had a compromise at 11th hour, and unfortunately it didn't, didn't uh, go through. And you also said uh, lots of time in putting this plan mm-hmm. together, lots of money, a million dollars. A million dollars. And that. And thank you, Governor Malloy, and thank you to the legislature uh, for giving us the funds to do that. A lot of states don't have that uh, luxury to do it. And, and the other thing, <clears throat> we were mandated to get this done by January 1st of uh, 2018, and we got, you know, in the government, sometimes things don't get done at time. Lucy, we got this done on time. And the legislature didn't vote. Correct. Let's get another uh, take again on on whether uh, <clears throat> the the language of of water being a public trust should be included in the state's first ever water plan. Joining us on the phone now is Betsy Guerra, executive director of the Connecticut Water Works Association. Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, tell us briefly um, who you represent in this association. The Connecticut Water Works Association is an association of municipal, private, and regional water utilities in Connecticut. And I'm their executive director, and we um, are very actively involved in issues, legislation, and policies that affect the availability and quality of Connecticut's public water supplies. So what are, uh, tell us a little bit more about the concerns of, of labeling water as a public trust, how that would impact uh, the utilities you represent. The water companies have been very actively engaged in the development of a water plan. So for the last four years, many of our members served on various work groups and steering committees to ensure that the plan was balanced, that it protected the availability of public water supplies to meet public health safety and economic development needs while also protecting the environment and aquatic life. And that was our primary goal. So we were very concerned that after the 120-day public comment period that the language of the state water plan was amended to include this reference to public trust. And as indicated by uh, Val and and Commissioner Bukowski, 
this language is in statute. It was part of the preamble to the Connecticut Environmental Protection Act. However, that act was enacted to provide legal standing to citizens to bring actions against state agencies, against businesses, to compel them to protect natural resources from any pollution or unreasonable impairment. It was not, however, intended to be used in a way to balance water uses or to prioritize water uses. And that's where our concern came in. The public trust doctrine is actually a, a very complex doctrine. It's rooted in Roman law and old English law, and it has been expanded by the courts in some states in ways that could be very problematic for entities that rely on public water supplies, such as businesses, uh, public health issues, hospitals, agriculture, etc. And so we were nervous about what that language meant. We did raise concerns with the Water Planning Council. And to make sure that our concerns were valid and that we weren't overstating our concerns relative to the language, we did obtain a legal opinion from Dave Pitney, a very respected law firm in Connecticut. And the legal memorandum did conclude that this language because it is referenced in a way that ties it to the balancing of water uses, could be misapplied and could signal an expansion of the public trust doctrine in Connecticut. Can I let Jack respond? So, oh. Hi, Betsy. <laughs> Morning. I assume you're in disagreement about how well, this I mean, should be no, interpreted. Actually, and we, we should say, Betsy, and I think the public should know, I mean, you, your association, number one, did a great job supporting the plan, as you indicated, and worked very hard to help us get this plan uh, to fruition. So, and I, and I thank you and your your membership for that. And we did at the eleventh hour have s- somewhat of a compromise with her. So her group of did we not? We did. And, and I, again, our, our issue had to be that the public trust language should not be referenced in isolation and should not be tied to the balancing of water uses in the way that it was. So we were comfortable with referencing the fact that we have a public trust. Um, and that that statute has been in existence since 1971. However, it was just really the way that it was tied into the plan was our, our major and, and, concern. And, and we respected that. And like I said earlier, I'm always about compromises and, and, and consensus. And I think that if we had come up with that new language with you, it probably would, and would have, uh, would, which we did, and it had gotten to a vote, it probably would have would have passed. But I, I just want to, for the record, it, w- the public interest statements, as I said before, in the plan twice, and it wasn't new language. It was language that has, had been already been in law. Um, I wanted to take some listener calls, and you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Lou's calling from Hamden. Lou, go ahead. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Lou Birch calling from uh, Citizens Campaign for the Environment. We're one of the groups that's been working on this issue, following it very closely, participating all throughout the public comment process. I just wanted to thank everybody for their comments so far. But I would like to say that the the issue that really strikes me is, once again, I mean, Betsy said it best, that, that you know, this concept of water as a public trust resource has been the way that uh, societies have looked at water for the last 2,000 years or longer. And one of the things that has not been mentioned so far is that this concept of balancing the needs of a healthy environment with the needs of sustainable economic development and uh, 
the need to preserve water as a public trust resource was the single most prevalent public comment that was received by the Water Planning Council during this whole process. So for now, and it's, you know, again, in fairness to the water utility, they do a very great, you know, very great, important, uh, you know, service for the state. Um, it wasn't just them. It was business interests, golf course, uh, the Business and Industry Association here in Connecticut um, that were, that seemed very threatened by this concept of water as a public trust resource. And it, I, I believe it has a lot to do with what their long-term plans are for the state. We have Niagara bottling in Bloomfield. Um, there was a huge public uproar over that issue because the public was not notified. The public was not involved in that process in a meaningful way. And so what this public trust concept says is that the people have a stake in the process, they have a right to a seat at the table, and they have the right to intervene if those water resources become threatened. Betsy Garrett, do you want to respond to uh, listener uh, Lou Birch? I think what we have to remember is that there's a tremendous amount at stake when you're talking about water uses and water rights. And there are companies, water utilities, golf courses, farmers that rely very heavily in this state on registered water diversion. And there was a concern that this public trust language could be used by the courts and by state agencies to end up revoking those registered diversions in a way that could be very problematic and could jeopardize the availability of public water supplies that these companies have relied on and have invested in. So, for example, water utilities, based on the availability of that registered diversion, have invested millions of dollars in infrastructure. And if that established water right was in jeopardy because of this language that could be construed to involve a reconsideration or prioritization of water uses, that was a big problem. And that's what we are trying to avoid by working with the Citizens Campaign for the Environment and Rivers Alliance and others to come up with language that reflected that water certainly is a public trust. We need to protect it for the future generations. Betsy, well, we're, that doesn't then expand that legal doctrine. We're, sh- we're short on time. I just wanted I, to get uh, Jack Bukowski to respond because, again, you're having a meeting. Was it next week? 15th, and right. the legislature still has yet to adopt any recommendations. What's the next step? Is it going to get derailed because of no, this, I'm, this, I'm this argument? No, I'm. It's not going to get derailed. We're, we're going to. You can tell that uh, both Betsy and Lou are really great, uh, intelligent people that represent their. Their groups and and I think that when we go all get into a room, we're going to be able to come up with a, a plan moving forward to address this public interest. I want to say that water is probably the most is the most heavily regulated utility. It's regulated by us. It's regulated by public health. It's regulated by the Department of Environmental Protection. So it's not like people can arbitrarily use water for whatever they want to use. So there are there are checks and balance in terms of the uh, utilizations of our water supply in the state of Connecticut. But I want to come back on the show again when we do get this passed in its entirety and give you an update like six months uh, from now to let you know things are moving. Sure. We're, we're going to keep following what's positive. happening with the Connecticut Water SJW merger deal as well. So uh, we'll be sure to, to reach out to you. Uh, Jack Betkoski again, chairman of the Connecticut Water Planning Council. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Liz. Also, Betsy Guerra, executive director of the Connecticut Water Works Association. Thank you, Betsy. Now, we know that people have said Connecticut's considered a water-rich state. What does that mean? How secure? 
more is the state's water supply. A hydrologist will join us after the break and we'll take your questions too. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. Water, it might be easy for us to take for granted that clean drinking water is available to us just a faucet away. But how secure is Connecticut's water supply given the drought the state experienced just two months ago? Joining our conversation now in studio with me, John Mullaney, hydrologist at the U.S. Geological Survey with the New England Water Science Center's Connecticut office. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, We had a lot of attention when Connecticut was in a drought in 2016. So we wanted to back up what exactly caused that drought and where do we stand now? Um, Well, um, I think when we go back to about 2015, we had, uh, you know, we had a a couple of years with really low rainfall and particularly low rainfall during the wintertime and through into the spring. So um, what we find is that um, that rainfall goes into the groundwater, which is really one of our big storage areas that provides a lot of the water for the state. So when we find ourselves in a situation where uh, we don't get that groundwater replenished during what we call the non-growing season, um, that's when we often start to get into trouble in the summer because we're sort of riding off that storage that we've put in place uh, as the drier months, you know, uh, as we head into those drier months. Uh, we were talking about uh, maintaining a, an adequate supply of water, but we know that um, residents are also concerned with the quality of our drinking water. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, um, one of the things the USGS does is we do monitor streams throughout the state. And so we have a we have long-term water quality, really, since the uh, Clean Water Act went into effect. And in general, we've been uh, water quality has been improving in the state. Um, in our rivers, uh, with the exception of some things such as like chloride, um, often related to road salt. Um, but uh, in general, Connecticut has really high uh, quality drinking water, particularly because um, as part of some of the state statutes, you can't draw a public drinking water supply from a waste receiving stream. We were talking about droughts just a a minute ago. Um, There's differences between a, a drought agriculturally and then also hydrologically. Can you explain that to us? Um, yeah, I guess I guess when we think of, um, uh, for instance, the drought, National Drought Mitigation Center uh, classifies different types of drought. And I think one of the ones that most people are probably familiar with is like a meteorological drought. Uh, we just really are, I mean, if you really want to think about it, it's a lack of rainfall or precipitation over a specified time period. Um, so, uh, but that can often lead into the other types of drought. So an agricultural drought really has to do with how um, you know, the ability to grow crops and whether soil moisture is sufficient for plant, plant demand. And the susceptibility for this drought varies during um, different stages of the crop development. Um, that kind of leads us next, though, is once we've got soil moisture down and a lack of rainfall, we often end up with a hydrological drought. But what's kind of interesting is sometimes, as I was saying, if we, get a, if we have a year that's been wet like this year and we build a lot of groundwater storage over the course of the winter, um, sometimes, you know, we have quite a bit of water in our streams, even if we get a lack of rainfall in the summer. So we might not end up in that drought condition. Uh, but, the, but the hydrological drought would really be, you know, we start to notice the streams are low, the reservoirs are getting low, uh, people are starting to have problems with their wells drying up uh, on some of the, you know, private domestic wells. 
So we're hearing that uh, so far for the year, it's been uh, wet enough and we're looking good in terms of water. Uh, but when people hear that, I also see when I'm driving around my neighborhood, people are watering their lawns in the evening. What are some responsible ways to conserve water so that we don't take it for granted when we, when we hit that, when we may see some drought conditions coming up, um, who knows, in a couple of months? Um, well, I think, I think one of the things we notice when we look at water use, and the USGS does do um, five-year compilations of water use for the United States, but uh, a, lot of our, a, a lot of our use is really where we really change our uses seasonally when we start using water outside. Um, and so, um, you know, the lawn watering and, and landscape watering can be a large component of our water use, especially seasonally. But there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of other small things that can be done, and the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection has some, uh, has some tips on their website as well as a lot of the water utilities. Um, but there's, we, we certainly could be using water a lot more efficiently in the state. And I know in the state water plan, there's some discussion about we have a lot of relatively easy conservation measures that are sort of like the low-hanging fruit that could still be done without really affecting anybody. Tell us more about those. Well, I'm just saying these are things like looking for, you know, for instance, fixing leaky toilets, um, watering appropriately so that you're not wasting water and actually using it efficiently if you're using it outside. Um, those type of things, I think, is what we're talking about, uh, as well as, you know, water-saving fixtures and uh, a number of other things. Uh, we hear so often about uh, the climate changing around the globe. Uh, we know about our drought just two summers ago. Now we're seeing wet conditions. Um, in terms of predictions, you know, are we, are we back into this uh, pattern of seeing more rain, or is it too, is it too, uh, is it too uh, early to talk about those kinds of patterns? Well, I think um, one of the things we look at where we are this year, it seems like we're back into a pretty normal condition right now. Uh, however, if you look at things like the 36-month sliding window of precipitation, we still haven't recovered from the drought in terms of um, looking at that as one of the things the Weather Service puts out. Um, but as far as what uh, expectations are for climate change in Connecticut, I think with, and some of this is discussed a little bit in the state water plan, but we talk a little bit about the consensus of a lot of these general um, circulation models that are used to try to predict what the future climate would be like. And the general consensus would be that obviously we're, we're, we're heading towards warmer temperatures and probably wetter conditions. Um, that said, I think this possibility for um, variability to be greater. For instance, one of the things we've been seeing in recent years uh, actually, particularly since like the 1960s and 70s, has been an increase in the amount of extreme precipitation events. And those are things that are well documented out there in the science literature. And is there potential for extremes that we've seen out west? Um, well, the only thing is with more variability and worrying about things like a drought, you know, the, the possibility of stringing together a couple of years in a row, like, like what previously happened where we don't get a lot of rainfall during that sort of that winter period when we kind of rebuild some of our storage and having a, a, a several years in a row like that is where we probably will lead, uh, you know, find ourselves getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the possibility exists, but I really can't say, I'm not a climate expert, I can't really say whether, you know, the likelihood is that much greater, but we do, we do have the potential for that to occur. Uh, we heard from Jack Bukowski uh, earlier about uh, Connecticut uh, being one of the first states in New England to uh, come up with this uh, water plan. Um, when we look at the other regions in New England, uh, we have differing uh, issues with when it comes to drought, or is this something we're seeing patterns be more consistent throughout the region? Well, I think I think our last drought that we had was, uh, you know, particularly notable. I think in Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts. So. 
We often have similar things going on. Sometimes there's a little bit different things going on in parts of northern New England because the patterns of uh, snowfall and snowmelt are different, and so we do see some different things happening there. We'll have to leave it there. John Mullaney, hydrologist at the U.S. Geological Survey, also with the New England Water Science Center's Connecticut office. John, thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm Lucy Alpethanchel. This is where we live.